Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my compatriot Dan Larson as we wade through the groupthink, swamp talk, and gas baggery of the Washington establishment. The hyperventilation over foreign policy has been particularly acute in the Imperial City this week after the U.S. military shot down four flying objects, three of which have not been identified as of this recording over the U.S. and Canada. Meanwhile, there are a ton of mixed signals coming out of the White House over how long the U.S. is willing to support Ukraine's war with Russia, with a lot of talk about running out of ammunition to give the Ukrainians and doubt that more and more sophisticated weapons could even get to Ukraine in time for a supposed Russian offensive. So a lot going on. In the second segment, we'll be talking to Lyle Jeremy Rubin, a Marine Corps veteran who fought in Afghanistan and has since turned against what he calls the building and maintenance of U.S. empire. He'll be talking about his memoir, Pain is Weakness, Leaving the Body, a Marine's Unbecoming with us in the next segment. Before that, let's get back to the politics of war. This week, Nikki Haley, consummate hawk and former Trump administration official, announced her candidacy for president. Haley, who is an Indian American, focused mostly on domestic concerns in the video announcing her bid this week, but in an attempt to burnish her pro-American values platform, signaled right where she would be on foreign policy issues, and that is hard on China, which she accused of committing genocide, Iran, which she accused of murdering their own people, and Russia, which she accused of throwing Ukrainian babies into fires. Now, she's not the only Republican hawk pursuing the 2024 GOP nomination. Mike Pompeo is supposedly eyeing a run and has just released his own book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. I have not read the book, but no doubt he is reveling in his glory days as a Trump administration secretary of state and is also trying to burnish his hawkish positions on the aforementioned hotspots of Iran and China and no doubt Russia. So, Dan, I mean, what concerns me most about this is that we'll have a old style Republican primary in which every Republican candidate will be fighting with each other to to show how hawkish they are, how tough they are on Americans, quote unquote, adversaries and leave little room for restraint. Now, I get that this is how Trump won in twenty in twenty sixteen by being the only non hawk besides uh, Rand Paul for a spell. Um, but how do you see this shaping up? Are we just going to see a retread of two of twenty sixteen? Well, yeah, I, I think we, we probably. Well, I think Trump wants it to be a retread of twenty sixteen. He's trying to position himself that way. I think Politico reported last week or the week before that he's angling to identify himself as the the relatively less hawkish candidate uh, compared to someone like Haley or Pompeo. the The key problem for Trump is that he has now has a, a record that he has to either defend or run away from uh, from when he was president, and that includes appointing people like Pompeo and Haley to these top positions in his government in his administration. Excuse me. Uh, that, where he's entrusting them with the running of his foreign policy. And then he's going to turn around and say, you can't trust these warmongers. Uh, well, he trusted the warmongers with running his foreign policy. 
which is why his foreign policy was overall actually quite hawkish and and not what people what some people hoped it might be right uh, back back in 2016 and so i, I don't think he he gets to get a, a a do-over in that respect he's he's stuck with the record that he uh that he had uh he, he's stuck with the foreign policy decisions that he made uh and the the odd thing we're going to see is a, a former president and all the people that used to work for him jostling with each other trying to discredit each other even though they all have the same foreign policy record they, they have they, and they, they there are no fundamental disagreements among them about that record it's not as if haley and pompeo disagreed in a big way with major decisions that trump made they were the ones that were always ag- agitating for the most hawkish options and they usually got their way yeah uh, especially on iran uh she was a big booster of getting out of the nuclear deal mm-hmm. uh, he was only in the administration for about half the time uh, but she was there for the withdrawal from the nuclear deal and she's been a, a big fan of everything that Trump did after that. So I, I don't really see an opening for them, but I but I don't see how he can go after them without indicting his own record as bad as well. And so, I, yeah, I think it does come back to what you were talking about at the beginning, that we're going to have a bunch of people trying to outbid each other in hawkishness, um, and, and they're all going to be attacking Biden uh, because in, in terms that Biden is too soft or too weak uh, about uh, various issues. And, and we're already seeing that. Uh, Pompeo came out with an op-ed the other day after the State of the Union denouncing Biden uh, across the board for not being tough enough on China. Uh, Haley had a tweet the other day. Uh, she said, Iran is steps away from a nuclear bomb. North Korea fired more missiles last year than any other on record. Terrorists have made Afghanistan home under the Taliban, and Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, but the implication that it's some of the, that somehow all of that is either Biden's fault or that a different president could have somehow altered those outcomes or those events. Uh, and so it's, it's it's pretty discouraging if you're interested in finding some kind of alternative foreign policy to what. Republicans have been offering lately uh, to see that pretty much everybody that's going to be in the field and that's already in the field uh, is offering just more of the same bankrupt stuff that we've uh, all come to, to hate so much. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal and Haley's role in the withdrawal. And I just quickly looked up um a piece in which she makes the argument in the Washington Post. She didn't write it. It was a piece by Ann Guerin, September 5th, 2017. I, I was spurred into Googling this because I remember the day that they announced a withdrawal. And please forgive me if I, I'm, I'm misremembering. But I remember a, an event at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, where she sat on stage with Danielle Pletka, one of the biggest neocons in Washington, D.C., who hasn't been in support of every U.S. intervention on the planet in the last 25 years. And they sat there and they talked about how Iran was in violation of the JCPOA and all sorts of things that weren't even included in the JCPOA as reasoning for, for getting out. And so I, I Googled quickly uh, this Washington Post piece you went on, boy, Haley makes case for U.S. to potentially pull away from Iran nuclear deal. She talks about how you, 
quote, you can't put lipstick on a pig. We have to look at the reality that this deal is flawed. And an interesting point in, in the piece is that at the time she was at odds and her, or her position appeared to be at odds with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson at the time, who, quote, and I'm quoting Ann Guerin here, has argued that despite imperfections, the deal offers benefits, including a reprieve from the imminent threat of an Iranian bomb and solidarity with European and Asian allies. And that just um, brought back all these memories of Rex Tillerson, who was way out of his league in that particular role as Secretary of State to the point where I was feeling bad for the guy because he was so out of his element. But he actually represented more of the restraint impulse of that Trump administration in the early days. And he came up against all of these Washington creatures who were coming from their standard Republican old cold warrior uh, positions had been here for years and they're like, you ain't going nowhere. And they had put up all sorts of roadblocks on this guy. And, you know, and that included the whole Iran, U.S. Iran, Iranian relations, as well as efforts in the Middle East uh, for um, getting us, disentangling us from the Middle East. And I, I don't know if you remember, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. But when the, Saudi Arabia wanted us to get involved in Yemen, and uh, we enjoined that fight, and Rex Tillerson came out and said that you know Kushner had been involved in talks with uh, with the Saudis, Jared Kushner, son-in-law of the president, and I believe McCain and and some others, and he had been pretty much left out of the loop on some of the discussions of the U.S. involvement and assistance to Saudi Arabia in that war. And so I think this talk, and I'm sorry if I'm misremembering some of the finer details of this. I know Mark Perry did a great piece for us at American Conservative on it, but this goes to your point that there was this weird mix and tension going on in the Trump administration between these hawks on one end and some of these other people that Trump had tried to bring in to be more restraint oriented or less interventionist or whatever you want to call it. And, and the only ones left standing at this point are the hawks, Haley, Pompeo, um, McMaster is at FDD making all sorts of noise over there. So it is it is unfortunate and I it doesn't bode well for any future uh Trump administration that's for sure if they're if they're god willing <laughs> or, or, or or what's the word I'm looking for god forbid he would actually win another election uh yeah there there was a struggle going on inside the Trump administration early on uh, where you had some I'd say I don't know if they were exactly restraint oriented but they were People voicing caution about yeah. wanting to get out of the, the deal. Because, of course, Trump ran on getting out of the agreement. Uh, he, he was very vocal about it, uh, going back almost to the start of his candidacy. It was, it, was, it was one of those, to me, it was one of those warning signs that something was off there. That you, had, you, know, you had to watch out because why, why was he so obsessed with tearing up this agreement, which by all accounts seemed to be doing what it was supposed to do and was helping to keep that proliferation danger 
in check. Uh, and so what ended up happening is that a, a lot of the, the more hardline elements inside the administration were egging him on and encouraging him in those instincts. Uh, and in the end, he, he ended up going with them. And I, you know, I think the, the record speaks for itself that it's, it has not been very good uh, for us or for the region or for Iran. Uh, so you, I mean, you have Nikki Haley here planning, saying Iran is steps away from a nuclear bomb. How did they get there? It was principally because the U.S. tore up the agreement or, or stopped fulfilling its obligations under the agreement. And then uh, between U.S. sanctions and Israeli sabotage attacks, the Iranians then began to build up their nuclear program again in response to that. And so if Iran is that close to a bomb today, and, and, and people can dispute about whether they're actually intent on building one now. I, I still think they're not going to do it, but but they're certainly closer now than they've ever been. And, and they got there because of the work that Trump and Haley and Pompeo did. And, and now they have the gall to turn around and try to blame Biden for the mess that they made. Uh, it's, 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 quite, uh, it's quite frustrating. Uh, but, you know, they, they benefit from the fact that a lot of people have very short memories about these things. And so they'll, people will look at the situation that Biden inherited, uh, and which he, you know, he didn't handle terribly well, but he, he inherited that problem from them. And now they're going to try to use it against him as, as some sort of argument for going into even more hardline options than they did before. Uh, it's, uh, it is very discouraging, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, suggest that a future Republican administration would be uh, very friendly to to any restraint ideas yeah as things stand right now and and i that's unfortunate because there is actually a significant constituency on the right i think that is interested in finding a different kind of foreign policy that wants u.s foreign policy to be at least more peaceful if not if not as peaceful as we would like it to be more peaceful than it is uh and and less interested in stoking these rivalries and pursuing conflicts that don't have anything to do with our security. And so I mean, to the extent that Trump gets that that constituency exists and he's interested in tapping into it, that's, that's something, but it's not much. Um, and so that, unfortunately that's, that's the sort of thin rule that we have uh, in front of us. Yeah. Before we go, I just wanted to say, I kind of must up, my um, recollection of the Tillerson spat with Kushner. He did have a spat with Kushner, but it was over the Saudi embargo of Qatar. So in, oh, yes. in 2017, Kushner met privately with Saudi Arabian officials and basically gave tacit approval for them to um, embargo um, the the state of Qatar in the in the Gulf and or the blockade rather uh, which lasted several years and it was it was quite quite crippling but you know Tillerson had complained like I am the Secretary of State not this the president's son-in-law and apparently Jared had also left um, Pentagon's uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis out of the loop on several occasions too. Um, which all speaks to, like, like you said, the the problematic nature of of a tr another Trump presidency. Um, well, we'll just we'll have to see. 
you know, you never know. Uh, maybe a DeSantis will emerge as a candidate of the, of restraint. Uh, I don't think you or I have much confidence in his foreign policy, but, you know, maybe, maybe there will be some, uh, voices in the restraint community that will sort of win him over and, uh, school him a little before he goes out there. Um, but it, it, it remains to see. But I, I agree with you, Dan. It doesn't look like there is as much hope for that. Our guest today is Lyle Jeremy Rubin. He is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and the author of Pain is Weakness, Leaving the Body, A Marine's Unbecoming. He has a doctorate from the University of Rochester, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the Nation, Dissent, and Res- Responsible Statecraft, among others. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're very excited to talk to you about this book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a really bracing read, very uh, kind of brutally honest in a lot of places. Uh, so this is a, a very personal memoir that you wrote about your experience in the military, uh, but it's also an account of how you began to recognize the damage that an imperial foreign policy and an imperialist ethos do to the world and to America. Uh, tell us a bit about how the book came about. Sure. So, you know, the book is basically a story of my disillusionment, um, not just from the narrow mission in Afghanistan or even the slightly broader mission in the greater Middle East, but really my disillusion with the United States uh, place in the world. Um, and, and I wouldn't, I would argue not just as this, as the leader in the world or the hegemonic force in the world, you know, whatever euphemism you would say is that I, I think my dis- disillusion, uh, went hand in hand with a, a very slow, slow going awareness that, uh, I was fighting on the side of an empire and, and arguably the most powerful empire in all of human history. Um, so it was, so I think, in answer to your question, I think when I first started having doubts, when, when the disillusioning began, and I would argue that it began even before I went to Afghanistan in 2010, uh, I was already having thoughts about maybe putting this to paper in one way or another. Um, but it wasn't really until, you know, I, I got back uh, from Afghanistan in, in the summer of 2011 or actually the rather the winter of 2011, I got out of the Marine Corps the summer of 2011. Uh, and it, it took me a long time to actually convince myself that that this is a story that was worth telling. Um, at, you know, despite all my there's a lot of um, this type of project is fraught with all sorts of second guessing and guilt uh, uh, and all the rest. But I think during the Trump years, certainly it seemed like a lot of my worst fears about uh, Empire General and particularly the trajectory that I was worried that the U.S. would be taking, um, you know, was beginning to come to fruition. Uh, and I just felt like, you know, this was a story that maybe our conversation could benefit from. And, uh, and you know, one of the things I like in the book is that you do talk very explicitly about Empire and, and Empire as system of domination of exploitation and and how that sort of pervades all aspects of I mean, not just our foreign policy but also uh has to do with the way that we organize things here at home as well 
And uh, so when, when you uh, when you talk about empire, uh, how do you envision that uh, as as a system? Uh, sure. Um, so I think there's there's obviously all sorts of definitions for empire, just like there are for all abstractions. I think the most basic definition of empire that most people uh, think of is kind of territorial empire. So, um, you know, even by that kind of very uh, unambitious understanding of empire, uh, the U.S. is an empire. Um, we we still have colonies. We still have territories that uh, and the, the people that live there do not have the same rights that uh, citizens of the continental United States have in many ways. Um, you know, there's a great book by Daniel Imovar, uh, How to Hide Empire, which is which is about the history of not only the, this ter- territorial imperialism that has continued to this day, um, but also how this territorial imperialism has been rendered invisible um, in the eyes of most Americans um, and even many people around the world, uh, aside from those that are, you know, living in these territories. Um, but I think. You know, that again, that's kind of the most narrow definition. Uh, there's also, you know, wider understandings of empire as you, you could define it as just kind of like um, as a political empire. Um, you know, that there are many political institutions. The United States has played a central role, in fact, the central role in building and maintaining. Um, uh, and these political institutions are very much linked to economic institutions, whether we're talking about the IMF or the World Trade Organization or the World Bank, all these Bretton Woods institutions that came to the fore after World War II. Um, the, the whole structure of the United Nations um, has been heavily shaped by um, the fact that the United States was really the only great power that was left fully standing uh, after the war. Um uh, and, you know, and, and therefore the whole global political and economic system, uh, as many people realize is, is very much, uh, a, a creature of the United States. So, so you can, you, and I think, you know, if you, if you, if you understand empire is basically a social relation, uh, particularly a, a relation of domination. Um, so one group of people do not dominating another group of people or many other groups of people, um, you know, that the domination that the U.S. wields in the world or imposes goes well beyond its territories. Um, the IMF is often used to basically effectively give orders to, um, you know, populations around the world uh, in, in often very radical orders about how to how they need to structure their societies and where all their resources need to go. Um so and then there's also just, uh, of course, just the military empire. I mean, the U.S. has the most bases, you know, around the world in, in, in human history. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it kind of changes from year to year, but something like 80 percent, 70 to 80 percent of the world's nations have a have a U.S. military presence in, in one one form or another. Um, you know, that's that is uh, unprecedented. Uh, and that also leads to all form, all sorts of forms of, of domination, and and I would argue even kind of oppressive dynamics in those places. Sure. Well, and, and while you were talking, I was thinking that uh, in terms of our economic and financial power, uh, we see that expressed also through the use of sanctions 
uh, can, which can be quite uh, devastating to the targets as well. And so that, that would be another aspect of it. Um, in uh, th Throughout the book, you, you wrestle with the, the issue of, of having been in the military, having, having served in Afghanistan, and, and realizing that that's what gives you a kind of authority to talk about these things, but, but you also don't, uh, you don't like being in that position. Uh, you, you say at one point at near the end of the book, I wish I could rail against the war that is America without dwelling on the war proper. Uh, can you tell the audience a bit more what, about what you mean by that? Sure. So I, I'm very cognizant of how war and militarism has very much became a consumer product um, for most Americans and even people around the world. Um, it's something that people are entertained by. And I don't think this is unique to U.S. empire. Um, I'm a, a, I wrote my dissertation on, on uh, readings of Adam Smith in the United States. Um, and Adam Smith has a, a pretty provocative quote about all those that live in the metropole, the imperial metropole. And he had uh, the British imperial metropole in mind in, in the late 18th century, uh, you know, often cheer on um, the emergence of any kind of wars or battles from afar because they find it very entertaining. Uh, and 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 they they see their tax dollars uh, at least being used for something uh, that that brings some type of entertainment to them. And I I do think, unfortunately, uh, when you look at how many how many of the movies that are coming out of Hollywood that are in fact being funded and written by and advised by the military industrial complex, if you look at our video game industry, you know, very much also an adjunct or organ of the military industrial complex. Uh, our entire entertainment complex is, uh, you know, essentially um, uh, has essentially been subsumed or absorbed by uh, this kind of militarism. So I, I, I've always felt uncomfortable about writing about my military experience, particularly my war experience um, in, in, in detail, because I've always been concerned that no matter what I write, uh, it will be received in that kind of way. And, uh, you know, there's a famous line from uh, Anthony Swafford's uh, Jarhead, and it's also in the, the movie that there's no such thing as an anti-war anti novel or an anti-war book uh, or an anti-war movie. Uh, that he was speaking directly, he was talking about fellow veterans and, and military personnel of his, that no matter what they watch, no matter what they read, to them it's like a form of motivation um, so it, it might not be a form of motivation for every American that watches a, a, a an anti-war movie or reads an anti-war book. But again, I think that entertainment quality is still very much there. So this is something I wanted to wrestle with. And I, I, I kind of, um, tried to downplay the excitement of the war, um, and, and the, uh, the sensationalism of the war as much as possible, and really keep the politics of the war and the morality of the war in the forefront. Thanks for coming on, Lyle. It's, I'm so happy um, to be able to talk to you and ask you a few questions because uh, I have a lot of them. I'll try to keep them brief. But um, you talked a little bit about um, your expectations when you went into the service. And it seemed, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that you had – you had sort of seen the military as a way, to, you know, to um, fulfill some of the um, 
aspirations you had personally, um, how you, you saw your role in serving your country, but then you find when you get in there that the same pathologies outside and some of the, um, the, the, the problems that you had been facing outside, whether it be self-esteem issues, uh, were more exacerbated uh, being uh, a young Marine in boot camp, um, that there was this normalization of the bullying and the violence and um, the competition from the outside on the inside and that brotherhood that you seem to think might be there for you because I'm sure you had been reading all of the um, you know, the brochures and, and watching the movies and all that expectation of there being, um, this higher purpose by becoming a Marine was a, a little bit shattered from, you know, your, uh, accounting. And that kind of breaks my heart because I see, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been this messaging that's gone out to young people that this is a pathway. The the U.S. military is a pathway for young people who may not go to college or they don't see themselves as a good fit for college, or they have some of the the economic socioeconomic issues that um, that they are um, convinced in so many ways will get fixed, quote unquote, if they join the military and they find that higher purpose or that calling or a, a the skills and a professional background that they might not have gotten from wherever they were coming from. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of disconnect um, when I'm looking at the Super Bowl and I, I I saw some of the commercials last night and one of them was a real hardcore recruitment uh, commercial that involved, you know, men and women from all sorts of uh, backgrounds and nationalities talking about, hey, I never expected to see myself in the, in the military. And I'm like, ugh. You know, after, you know, uh, reading your accounts, it, it really rings hollow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things I was trying to do in the book, but certainly one of them was to kind of um, slay this, 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 you know, sacred cow, this idea that the, the military is apart from American society as a whole. It's it kind of it's it's a it's an object object unto itself that only those who are in the military or have served adjacent to the military really can understand. And, um, you know, therefore, if you're ever writing about the military, you are only writing about the military. You are, you are only writing about our veterans. And, and you know, I wanted to um, kind of expose all the ways in which the military um, highlights or even uh uh, highlights or, or, or exhibits a kind of a more intense version of a lot of the pathologies that exist in our society as a whole. Um, um, I can just give one example of, of what I'm talking about uh, when it comes to military training. Um, I argue that a lot of the indoctrination that happens at boot camp uh, or at officer candidate school, particularly when it comes to dehumanization um, and this is this is kind of training that has been perfected uh, since World War II, when the military brass and civilian leadership realized that a lot of, in fact, an overwhelming majority of frontline troops during World War II were not aiming directly at the enemy. They either weren't firing their weapon at all, or they were firing to the left of the enemy or the right of the enemy. So they introduced, you know, pretty intensive uh, dehumanization mechanisms. Uh, and by the Vietnam War, 
um, the, the, the numbers had totally reversed and the overwhelming majority of frontline troops uh, were very efficient uh, as far as uh, pulling that trigger. Uh, but I argue that this type of dehumanization, you know, precedes one's entry into the military. Uh, it follows uh, one's exit from the military. And it, it, it's all around all of us, not just those that are in the military or, or were once in the military. Um, that so much of our media, so much of our pol- political culture um, is about um kind of sucking out all the individuality and humanity of you know vast amounts of the world's population um and particularly those people or those regions um that the US government and its allies have an interest in dominating at any given moment um so yeah so that's part of it um i think kelly in response to uh, the discussion of masculinity, um, you know, I, I guess I could just kind of um, riff off the title of the book, Pain is Weakness, Leaving the Body, which is um, no one really knows who originally said it. There's theories that it was um, Chesty Puller, who, you know, the, the famous, arguably the most famous uh, Marine of all time, that he is the one who came up with that term. Uh, it's probably more likely that he popularized it and that it, w- it was already around before him. But in any case, I mean, it really comes down to this idea that in order to become a man, uh, one must both receive and give tremendous amounts of pain. Uh, that manhood is defined by one's uh, ability to endure and to impose pain. Um, So it's this kind of fetishization or worship of pain. And I think this is something that exists, again, across our society. I mean, even the way we talk about, um, uh, you know, economic questions, you know, uh, it's an incredibly punitive discussion where, you know, if someone uh, isn't working, you know, miserable hours every day and throughout the week, uh, then somehow they're not truly doing what they should be doing. And there's there's kind of there's all these masculine assumptions or hyper masculine assumptions there that that if you're if you're not always in pain, <laughs> uh, that you're not you know you're you're not you're not a real man basically. And and of course it's I'm simplifying here, and this this type of logic applies to people beyond just 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 men but it's this kind of masculine idea that i think is just so ubiquitous um and you know obviously on the foreign policy front um it's always this kind of manly escalatory logic right so like whenever we as a people or or at least those who speak for us uh, feel like they've been attacked or impugned or threatened in any way the the kind of bipartisan bipartisan assumption is that there needs to be some type of response, some type of violent response. Um, and again, this is this is this is a very gendered way of thinking, uh, where um, you know you, it's, it's this constant need to defend and maintain one's own one's own sense of, of, of manhood and, and if, you know, and, and manly strength. Um, 
And, you know, again, I, I, I really decided during the Trump years that this is a book I had to write because what was once subtext became text. Um, the, this type of thinking, which was always kind of somewhat unspoken, uh, became, you know, very explicit, not, not just from Trump, but from Pompeo and, and, and from, um, you know, the entire establishment. Uh, beyond just the foreign policy establishment. Um, well, let me ask you a question. When we're looking at recruitment levels, taking a nosedive, I think the Army was looking at like a 25% shortfall in their recruitment last year. I think the Marines made their recruitment goals, but I, I know having reported on this for years that sometimes they 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 tweak the actual goals so that if they know that they're not going to make them, it won't look so bad when they don't. But do you think that um, all of these issues are, are finally catching up with the military, not just the, you know, the internal issues uh, and problems that, that you experience, but the wars, the empire building, what, what do you think is accounting for the fact that, I think only they, they're saying something like only a quarter of uh, Americans who of, are of age to join the military are even uh, qualified. And of those, uh, only a fraction actually want to go into the military. What's going on here? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of factors. I think, you know, at a very fundamental level, um, the war on te- terror, if it hasn't formally ended, has inform- informally come to a close. So I think we're in this weird interregnum. Of course, we're, we're seeing a lot of calls for a kind of new Cold War, whether it's with Russia or China. But it's it's a lot of things are up in the air right now. So um, the sense of purpose that this country had for almost two decades has, has been lost uh, to a large degree uh, on, on the imperial front. Um, and a lot of people are just like, why, you know, why does the military need the same, uh, manpower, you know, or personnel numbers that they needed during the war on terror? I mean, the war on terror is basically over. So I think at a, you know, at a fundamental level, that's, that's going on. I think part of it might be, um, kind of healthy conversations about gender and, you know, particularly among young people. Um, so it's, it's just kind of harder to play that kind of that gender card, uh, that the gender appeal isn't as strong as maybe it once was, or that the manliness that I'm talking about uh, might be, um, uh, yeah, just not have the the same attraction or magma- magnetism that it's had in the past. I think a major reason uh, is, uh, you know, we're at a time, we're at a moment where it's like full employment or virtual full employment. Um, so I think there are just other opportunities out there. So in, in some way, I would argue that whenever the recruiters are having a hard time recruiting, that often speaks to the fact that things are a little better for, for the, the, the economy as a whole. Um, and, um, I had one other thing, but I'm, I'm forgetting what it was, but yeah, I mean, I, oh, I would mention, you know, when you were talking about a lot of you know, young people see the military as a route to a career and 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 some kind of stability in their lives. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and to dovetail, dovetail off what I just said, you know, one of the very I think one of the most popular um, 
uh, recruiting ads right now has a number of young people sitting around a fire pit talking about their futures. And, uh, you know, they're talking about their jobs. And one of them goes and says, oh, I just decided to join. I believe it was the Navy or maybe the Marine Corps, but I think it was the Navy. Um, and they're like, oh, why did you do that? And he's like, well, I'm going to get free health care and I'm going to get the GI Bill. So I'll be able to get free education. And I'll have free housing and I'll have I'll learn all these skills and, and have like, a you know, an upwardly mobile uh, career trajectory. And then the commercial ends with someone else being like, oh, well, sometimes my boss bring, you know, buys lunch for us or something, something like that. And that's kind of the, the punchline. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what I'm talking about, it, it's not even so much a poverty draft. It's, it's, I mean, the middle class has been so hollowed out in this country that unless you're, you know, very wealthy, uh, these are concerns that everyone has. And, right. And, and all those things help. sound really good to, to young people. Like they, right. they see stability in their future with all of those things that they'll, they'll get supposedly with. Exactly. So, so I, I always returned and I write about this a bit in the book, but there's this famous essay by the philosopher William James called the moral equivalent of war, uh, where he basically argues that there's a lot in the, the, the military as a whole and militarism as a whole is social, socially destructive that it leads to a lot of death. It leads to a lot of injury. Uh, it leads to a lot of instability, both within and without the society that is making the war. Um, and therefore we, you know, society as a whole should do everything they can to move away from militarism. And then in a very practical sense, move away from having such a large overwhelming military. But he says there's aspects of the military that are very admirable and not just admirable, but necessary for a healthy right. society. I mean, the military provides stability. Yeah, for a lot of people. And it provides solidarity and it, and it provides purpose. And it, it teaches all sorts of, in, uh, of skills that, that are very useful. Uh, you know, the leadership that can come from military training is extraordinary. Uh, so I think the, the important question always is how can we, um, provide the stability and solidarity and purpose, uh, and training that, that a lot of people, um, go to the military for. Um, how can we provide that outside the military? Um, and, you know, I think that's really where um, the discussion to a large degree needs to lie, especially at a point when our society is very much in tumult. Um, you know, we're just we're facing so many crises at this point. Um, so I think questions of how to like have, you know, more socially, socially beneficial forms of solidarity are just crucial at, at this time. Definitely. And, and uh, yeah, I think that that is the right way to go. And we'll have to end it there. I'm afraid we're out of time. But, uh, thanks very much, Lyle. We appreciate having you on. Uh, Lyle Jeremy Rubin, uh, author of the new book, Pain is Weakness, Leaving the Body and Marines Unbecoming. I uh, recommend it. Check it out. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.